Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We have a new round of authors to add to your Native bookshelf today. We'll talk with an energetic young poet and playwright who inspires a new generation of writers. We have a best-selling author with a new collection of essays about his deeply personal connections to the land and a dramatic historical account of the Oneida Nation's struggle to hold on to their self-determination. It's an eclectic mix of new and notable works by Native writers. That's coming up after the news. National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Montana's days of partisan balance and interim committees could soon come to an end. While the GOP wants more power between legislative sessions, there was wide support to leave one committee unchanged. That's the liaison between the state and tribal nations. Montana Public Radio's Ellis Julin has more. Senate Bill 176, which has already passed through the Senate, would restructure interim committees to have more members from the majority party. It passed an initial House vote closely along party lines Tuesday. Representative Amy Regeer from Kalispell says this change better reflects the makeup of the legislature and the GOP's supermajority. A 50-50 makeup of interim committees does not reflect the will of the voters. Senate Bill 176 would correct that. Before the House voted in support of the policy, it amended it with a carve-out to keep equal bipartisan balance on the state tribal relations interim committee. Representative Tyson Running Wolf, a Democrat from Browning, said that since the majority of the state's American Indian Caucus members are Democrats, changing that committee's structure would negatively affect tribal representation. Fewer tribal members on state tribal would decrease the understanding of these de unique differences, and it can sometimes bring policy that is not in the best interest of the tribes. Six tribal lawmakers sat on this 10-person committee last interim to study issues like missing and murdered Indigenous persons and tribal economic development. The amendment passed with strong bipartisan support in the House on Tuesday. Having passed its final vote in the House, the bill will be returned to the Senate for approval on the amendment. For National Native News, I'm Ellis Julin. A lawsuit is taking the state of Alaska to task for failed salmon runs in western Alaska. It claims the state has not only mismanaged the fisheries, but also violated the state constitution. As reported in the Alaska Beacon, the case was heard this week in a courtroom in Bethel, one of many communities hit hard by the salmon crisis on the Kuskokwim and Yukon rivers. Where runs have been so weak, traditional native subsistence harvests have been restricted or banned. The state's management of the salmon runs has pitted different regions of the state and different Alaska Native groups against each other. The attorney arguing says that the state has failed to follow the Constitution's principle of sustained yield, which requires a balance between harvesting fish and managing their numbers. The case is one of the first to challenge the state in court over salmon disasters. Western Alaska fishermen have pushed state managers to restrict fishing on the Alaska Peninsula to protect salmon that are being caught incidentally as fishermen target other species of fish. The state asked the judge to dismiss the lawsuit. It argued that it should be thrown out because it doesn't challenge any specific management decisions. It cited poor salmon runs is not enough to build a case against the state. The judge could take six months to decide if the case will go forward. Fans crowded into the Alaska Airlines Center in Anchorage this week to cheer on their favorite teams during state basketball championship games. This year, a unique partnership is bringing together basketball and native art. 
artists are set up on the third floor of the center for the inaugural Alaska Native Art Market. Fanny Perry is a Yupik artist whose table was full of crocheted hats and seal and otter fur slippers. Perry says it's important for Alaska Native artists to be successful selling their work because for many, it's their livelihood. For Perry, returning to the arena is like coming back to her old stomping grounds. I'm a huge basketball fan. I love basketball. And so um, 20, uh, 20 plus years ago, my team was actually down the court. I love events like this. I love seeing other people coming together and just enjoying themselves. The Alaska School Activities Association teamed up with the Alaska Native Heritage Center for the art market. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support for law and justice-related programming provided by Hobbs, Strauss, Dean & Walker, a national law firm dedicated to promoting and defending tribal rights for nearly 40 years. More information available at HobbsStrauss.com. Support from AmeriCorps VISTA, whose members serve to alleviate poverty while earning money for college and gaining professional skills. Rewarding service opportunities can be found at A-M-E-R-I-C-O-R-P-S dot G-O-V slash V-I-S-T-A. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce in Anchorage, Alaska. The United Nations' struggle to maintain their sovereignty is in many ways the story of so many tribes striving to maintain their land, language, and culture. But it's also a unique and compelling account of wins and losses in a particularly arduous series of legal fights with a nearby border town. The former Oneida senior staff attorney, Rebecca Webster, has documented the struggle in her book, In Defense of Sovereignty and we'll talk to her about it today. We also have a very personal account through prose and poetry about how best-selling author Joshua Whitehead connects to the land. And we start with a young poet and playwright who directs the Indian Girls Book Club, and the best way to learn about what that is is to let her tell you about it. As always, we want to hear from you too, our listeners. So please join our Native Bookshelf discussion today by calling in at 1-800-996-2848, that's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us now from Oneida, Wisconsin, is Rebecca Webster. She's an assistant professor of American Indian Studies at the University of Minnesota. She's a member of the Oneida Nation of Wisconsin. Welcome to Native America Calling, Becky. Thanks for having me. You bet, Becky. And joining us from the Southwest is Kinsale Drake. She's a poet and founder of Indian Girls Book Club. She's Danae Kinsale. Welcome to Native America Calling as well. Hi, thank you for having me. Kinsel, I'd like to begin with you. What inspired you to start a book club? I I think the book club, um, it came from a place that was very personal for me. I'm a writer, and I've always loved literature and reading. And um, when I was younger, I had no idea the scope of Indigenous literatures. I, I had no idea how much there was. I had no idea how much... You know, how many authors were writing these amazing books until I was a little older. Um, and 
it basically was a retroactive um, thing I did where I was like, well, what, what would I have liked to have had as a kid? What would I have liked to have access to as a young writer? Um, and so my thesis at, in college was creating programs that helps Native students stay in higher education, not be pushed out. Um, and one part that I thought was really underaddressed was uh, the creative arts world, specifically creative writing. And so that part kind of <laughs> married the other part of my work, which was, you know, wanting to provide resources for younger writers. And that's how book clubs started. Um, that's like the simplest explanation I can give. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, tell us more. I mean, how many members do you have? What kind of books are you reading? Yeah, we read everything. I'm a poet, so I, I'm very biased towards poetry, but um, we have about, well, it's grown exponentially in the past month and a half. We have now about 9,000 people who are interacting with our, our stuff. We have about 20, 25 people who go to our author talks. Um, and then we have a, you know, a really big turnout for our launch that's going to be in April in Phoenix. Um, but a lot of our community has really been built up over the years. Um, as a poet, a lot of the connections I was making to authors and to presses and to people running programs for young writers, those were personal connections that I was making. And, you know, now it's resulted in dozens of really important relationships to me that now I get to share with other writers and that I, I really want to create this, this beautiful network of people. Um, so it's really grown from something that was very personal to me to this great big um, web of excitement and, and connections <laughs> on social media, I think, specifically. Well, great big web of excitement is a great description because 9,000, <laughs> I mean, that that's a huge, huge following. And then it sounds like uh, so a lot of folks are able to connect via social media, but then you also have these in-person events that people can attend and, and meet real authors. Yeah, I mean, the great thing about Natives is there's so many of us, right? We have like hundreds of, of places that we, we live or that where tribal nations are. And so in-person events are always a challenge because of that. You don't want to, you know, be, 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 be based so much in the Southwest or one specific area. Um, so virtual stuff is kind of our response to that. I think we learned over the pandemic, we've been learning how to bridge these um, distances through virtual programming. So that was something that I really learned to do over the past two or three years. Um, and so that's, yeah, one of our strengths is we're run by young people and young people are great at using technology. So that's, you know, something <laughs> we're really proud of at Book Club. Well, I saw your spread in Teen Vogue and I want to compliment you. That was just a, a wonderful, wonderful feature. Great photos. And you're dialed in with some pretty high-profile Native celebrities on this project. <laughs> yeah, they're, um, yeah, friends from over the years. It's, it's, it's the same kind of deal, just, just folks that I've run into or that have been friends of mine for a while. As a writer, I would travel a lot for work and be invited to events where I would meet, you know, other people who were musicians or actors or also writers. And we had a mutual admiration for each other's work and, um, it's just kind of kept up over the years, and I think that's really a testament to how, you know, genuine these people are and how much they care about art deep down. So, um, yeah, the, the, it's, there are some pretty, I think, famous faces now that are supportive of our book club. Amber Midthunder, Quanta Chasing Horse, and uh, I got to ask you, I mean, are, are they actually reading the books too, or are they just taking pictures? Tell me the truth. <laughs> yes, they are, 100%. Um, Amber would probably be bad at me for saying this, but she is a secret poet. 
she loves poetry and she writes it too. And she told me that um, a couple months ago and I was like, oh my God, you have to send it to me. Um, and it's, it's good. I'll tell you that. Um, and she loves poetry books. I've gifted her quite a few and she's sent me some recommendations and Quana has been really loving Billy Ray Belcourt. I was reading some of um, their poems out loud and she asked me afterwards, she was like, what was the name of that poet? And I was like, oh, it's Billy Ray Belcourt. And I just gave her the book that I had. So they both have like a very close tie emotionally to poetry. I think as do a lot of people and um, literature in particular really speaks to them. Mm-hmm. Well, Kinsale, tell us more about your poetry. <laughs> oh, man, I've been writing poetry now. I've been doing it professionally for five or six years, but. Um, I got started as a national student poet, which is basically like a youth laureate program um, for young poets across the country. I was representing the Western region of the country. Um, That was back in 2017, 2018. But I was writing more in secret before then. I'm sure many can relate, but I was a pretty shy kid. Um, So my parents didn't even know that I wrote poetry until I was named a national student poet. And they were like, what the heck? What is this? Um, (laughs) But I write about, you know... Stories are really important to me. My family is a family of storytellers, and um, place is really important to me, too. My family comes from Navajo Mountain, Utah, which is a very beautiful place, and it it occupies a lot of my memories of my childhood and of my grandmother. So I I also, I've been talking about this recently, but I've been really digging into childhood and into what I loved as a child and embracing it through poetry, you know, whether that's Hello Kitty or, you know, the color pink, finding <laughs> finding some kind of connection to the present day and this inner child that I have. Um, and it's great because, you know, book club also has been digging into that, too. It's really for the little Indian girl in me, and I've been having fun exploring that in my poetry. Well, speaking of the, the little Indian girl, uh, and the title, of course, of, of the book club is Indian Girls Book Club. I, is it just for women, or are there boys and men that, that can be involved, too? How does that work? Yeah, everyone can be involved. Uh, the Indian girl in the title is me. So I, I always explain that. People are like, what about Indian boys? And I'm like, everyone's a girly. <laughs> like, everyone everyone is welcome. I like to, I call all my, my besties my girlies. And that's just some, that's just a term of endearment I have. And so it's, that's everybody. Everybody's welcome. And we do, you know, center largely um, Native writers of marginalized genders just because they're often not given a platform in the publishing industry as much so as, you know, cisgender men. Um, and we like, you know, queer writers. We center queer writers because, you know, I identify as queer and queer Indigenous literatures has been so integral to Indigenous futurisms and pushing the boundaries of scholarship and literature. So that's really important to us, too. And the ages of most of your members, uh, are, are they mostly teens or young adults? It's it everyone. I, it's it, it, honestly everyone. And that was surprising because I was like, well, given how we're marketing this, <laughs> we might might just be teenagers. But, you know, the most touching messages I've gotten have been um, older people DMing us older women, especially and older queer people saying, you know, I, I wish I had this as a kid and I'm so happy that this is here now. And I remember one message in particular that said, you know, I'm not an Indian girl anymore, but this is, this is really something. And I, and I remember I responded to her and I said, yes, you are. You're still a little Indian girl on the inside. Of course you are. And you're welcome in this space. So 
that's definitely been something that feels, you know, extremely rewarding being able to connect with people. And, you know, I always think of my aunties and, you know, who are a bit older now and, and they were writers too. They love books and seeing me come into my own in my career and what I do has, I think I've seen this effect of them coming out and being like, Oh, I actually wrote you a poem or I, I read this book. And so there's, you know, anybody can be an emerging writer or a literature lover. It doesn't matter. You can be part of the book club, no matter who you are. Kinsale, you know, part of what we're trying to do on our show today is is encourage listeners to read and also write. And it sounds like a, a, Book club is a good way to do that. Yeah. (laughs) So um, we're going to have to take a break here, but when we come back, I'm going to ask you a little bit more about the book club and this big event that you have coming up in April in Phoenix. We want to learn all about that and uh, also what your advice is to other folks who might be interested in starting a book club for themselves as well and other communities. It sounds like just uh, your book club has just been enormously successful so far, and we're looking forward to see it just grow and expand uh, in the months and in years to come as well. So anybody who's listening today who's a bookworm, likes to read, has any specific Native authors that they really enjoy reading, call in, tell us about it. Or if you have a question for Kinsale or other guest, Becky Webster, you can do that as well. The phone number, 1-800-996-2848. That's one 1-800- 800 996-2848. Native America calling, coming to you live today from Anchorage, Alaska. We'll be right back. <laughs> Kelly Mosteller is executive director of Harvard University's Native American program. But before that, she spent over a decade working to repatriate ancestors for the citizen Potawatomi Nation. Moss Deller is a tireless advocate for Native awareness, and she joins us as our Native in the Spotlight on the next Native America Calling. Hey, if you are 45 years or older, it may be time to talk with a healthcare professional about colon cancer screening. Medicare, Medicaid, and the marketplace have you covered. For more information, visit healthcare.gov or call 800-318-2596. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Elakwa. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking with Native authors about their new books today. In Defense of Sovereignty, Protecting the Oneida Nation's Inherent Right to Self-Determination by Rebecca Webster. And you're welcome to join if you're a fan of her work or if you're a Native book enthusiast, you can tell us about the new Native book you're reading. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Let's go to the phones right now where we have Anne listening on station KUNM up in Taos, New Mexico. Hello, Anne. Hi, how are you? Doing great, Anne. I understand you've got some Native poets you're a fan of. Oh, boy. Sherman Alexie is just doesn't, he just doesn't get enough credit, especially these days. Um, he is just an incredible genius in terms of his, uh, how he uses words, uh, how he uses song, how he uses storytelling. 
Um, and so uh, up here in Taos, he was the champion poet, uh, uh, the world heavyweight champion poet for the Taos Poetry Circus four years in a row. We couldn't mm-hmm. beat him. Um, and I, he actually retired with the crown. So, uh, and he is very prolific. So I encourage everybody to find uh, as much of his work as they can. Um, every single book from the beginning to the end is uh, genius work. Uh, and I'm talking about poetry. He, of course, makes his living writing uh, fiction, and he's a perfectly fine fiction writer. Uh, but his poetry is uh, humorous and sarcastic and just fabulous. And the okay. other uh, poet that I really want to turn everybody on to, if you don't already know him, is Adrian C. Lewis. Um uh, who similarly has a very contemporary outlook on poetry um, uh, and really is a fairly good reflection of uh, both res and urban-based natives. All right. So, well, Anne, thank wanted- you for – absolutely, Anne. Appreciate you calling in and sharing your thoughts. And Kinsale, uh, Adrian C. Lewis, uh, native poet, you familiar with his work? Yeah, I believe that he's Paiute. I've definitely heard of his work before, um, and I think he went to Brown, which is, I remember I was doing some research because some loved ones of mine were going to Brown, and I was like, let me look up all the poets who went there who were Native. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's. I definitely love his work, and he's on Poetry Foundation, which I've definitely stalked that before. Um, I remember, I think, Poem the Sacred Circle is one that I studied in school. Um, so yeah, I, I am familiar with his work. All right. Sounds like good stuff. Let's bring in our next guest now, Rebecca Webster again. She's an assistant professor of American Indian Studies at the University of Minnesota. And Becky, as an attorney, you've penned tribal governance handbooks, legal papers, now a book on the history of your tribe's legal conflicts over its land. Is this a natural extension of that previous work and experience? Yeah, I think it is. And actually, the what this book is all about is the, you know, frankly, the toxic relationship here on the reservation between the tribe and a local government. And that relationship is in a major part of what drove me away from being an attorney for my tribe and into a new career in academia. And when did you first get this idea to actually document all this history in this new book? Um, actually, it was the the last case that um, I talk about in the book, um, the Big Apple Fest case. And when we were successful in having that case overturned at the Seventh Circuit is when I decided we, we need to write a book about this. And um, and I contacted, you know, my mentor who worked with me at the law office and my other mentor who was our outside counsel and a couple historians and then a, a retired chief of staff and I talked to them. I said, we, we need to tell our story and we need to talk about this. And, and luckily they all agreed. And so we pooled our minds together and, and put this book together. Well, and I, I really appreciate that, how you have some of these other uh, people that contribute to the book as well. So you get these, these different perspectives on this history. And another aspect, Becky, that I really appreciated about your book is that it's, it's very reader friendly. It's not overly wordy or intimidatingly academic. And was that your goal, partially to write a book uh, of Native nonfiction for everyday readers? A hundred percent. I get really frustrated when I pick up 
um, materials, you know, that are not accessible, that are overly complicated and un unnecessarily so. And I wanted to make sure that these concepts, which can be really difficult concepts to wrap your head around, I wanted to make sure that our everyday readers would be able to understand them and really get a grasp on what's going on here in our community, as well as other Indian communities throughout the United States. These very same things are happening on different reservations. It's a challenge, isn't it? Because nonfiction, it can be tough to read. Uh, you know, it can be long, it can be kind of tiresome. And personally, I'm a little bit of a history buff. I'm a, I'm a book nerd. So I, I think I can appreciate, you know, what goes into to writing a book like this and also what it takes to read one. But sometimes when I, when I read really cool nonfiction um, on legal history or historical issues with Native Americans, I always am kind of worried, like, well, how many people are really going to read a book like this? You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. Um, I was a little nervous about that. But at the end of the day, I just thought we really needed to get our side of the story out there. Because if you look at the media, you look at what's going on, uh, we don't really get our voices heard that much. So I wanted mm -hmm. to make sure that even if it wasn't, you know, widely read, that it's still out there. And if people really want to know that they have access to be able to find out the true story. Um, one of the things that I really enjoyed about writing this book, too, is to kind of break away from the um, the facts or the, the 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 history behind what was going on is at the end of each chapter that I wrote, I was able to have some personal reflections, you know, years later about how this impacted me, how this impacted our community and what this means to us today. I appreciated the fact that you dedicated your book to your own children and then also children of of their generation, people of their generation. And obviously, you know, it's it's I'm always fascinated by our history because there are some parts of our history that we can't learn from books. Right. We've got to go out there in the community. We've got to talk to people, learn from our elders and others. But then there are other issues that, that we do have to pick up a book. Right. And we, we're going to have, you know, something really it has a lot of data and a lot of information, such as what you've compiled here. And what age do you recommend um, people begin, you know, pick up a book like this and read it, Becky? I, I try to write it so that even if you're in high school, you know, the high school kids should be able to grasp and digest this information. Um, but I also wanted to make sure that it was still relevant and interesting for, you know, your, your college students or even your law students to be able to get something out of this book. So as far as uh, students, that the age range would be, you know, high school to grad students um, and just your everyday reader to be able to pick this up and, and really enjoy it. Well, tell us more about the content of the book. It traces, uh, goes back to, the, to the, the history of when the Oneida people moved to Wisconsin and, and some of the legal issues that, that sprung up very early, even before they moved. There were issues there regarding that land and what was going to happen. Yeah, there were, you know, we've we've all been facing issues since contact. So um, our issues run deep. Um, you know, we, we were removed to what would later become the state of Wisconsin in the early 1800s. Um, there's some questions about, about those agreements with the Ho-Chunks and the Menominees to be able to share this territory with them. Um, you know, the United States set aside this reservation that was supposed to be, you know, like all of our treaties talk about, held for us forever. 
Um, that didn't last long. They, they broke that treaty pretty quick with the General Allotment Act, divided up the reservation, um, gave title to individuals, that, and after a period of time, that transferred because we were able to sell it, to mortgage it, um, had to pay taxes on it. So within a single generation here in Oneida, we lost 90% of our land. And that was extremely devastating for us. Um, mm. So now we have a mix of ownership here on the reservation. We have a mix of towns and, and county governments. So we have tribal members, non-tribal members, the, the tribe, uh, municipal governments, all you know, sharing this space and that sharing that space in such close quarters is, you know, has the potential to lead to this conflict. And that's a lot of what, what this book is about. It's about one local government here trying to tell the Oneida Nation how it should be doing its business, how it should be using its land, how, how it should be carrying on its events, which, you know, in most of these cases, the United Nation has been successful in defending its right to decide for itself what laws it's going to follow and and which permits it's going to obtain and um it to the detriment i guess of the the village of hobart who you know constantly wants to relegate us to the position of a a common landowner another issue that i, I just found so fascinating i i had never realized just how how large the oneida land holdings are and uh Green Bay, the city of Green Bay, for example, falls within your tribal land holdings. Green Bay Packers, they're on Indian land. Yeah, yeah. That, that's actually a funny story with that. So we were negotiating a service agreement with the city of Green Bay, and the mayor looked at a map that we brought and says, oh, look at that. Why is it that the reservation is within the city boundaries? <laughs> we said, wait a minute, wait a minute. We need, well, this, is a, this is a teaching moment here for sure, because the reservation was here before Wisconsin was a state. And uh, so we, we we explained the history to him, and he understood eventually. <laughs> well, one of our producers, uh, Annie Murphy, she wants to know, how can you use tribal sovereignty to keep Aaron Rodgers on the team? What about that one, Becky? <laughs> yeah, um, I'm not sure it's going to work. I think uh, the Packers Stadium is just a bit outside of our jurisdiction. Mm. But let's go back to this village of Hobart, and uh, boy, they've really been a thorn in the side of the Oneida Nation. Yeah, what do you want to know? <laughs> well, tell us, um, you know, what what really kicked off this huge dispute, and how did it wind up in the courts, and you know, maybe the Cliff Notes version, and, and where we're at now in terms of any resolution going forward. Sure. So the, the book covers six different lawsuits, um, pretty much all initiated by the village of Hobart. And it really started off with, um, and all of them have a common thread of land. Um, the first lawsuit was about um, the village of Hobart wanting to develop a significant portion of the reservation. Now, remember, Hobart and the village, uh, Hobart and the Oneida Reservation, they overlap in a part. The Hobart is entirely located on the reservation. They wanted to develop an industrial park in an area. Well, we, did, we didn't want that area of our reservation to become an industrial park. And the only way that we would have a say in that is if we purchased the land. So we did. We, we purchased you know, pretty much all of the industrial park area, which is vacant agricultural land. Um, and they wanted to put a road in there. And, and we said, 
why would you put a road in there? We don't want a road in there. It's not going to become an industrial park. And they said, we don't care. We're putting a road in anyway. And then we said, no, you can't. And they said, yes, we can. And all of a sudden we're in court. So that's pretty much how a lot of these cases are going. Um, you know, it's us trying to decide what goes on on our reservation. Um, there, another case is about them interfering with uh, an intergovernmental agreement between the Oneida Nation and, and Brown County, which is also on the portion of the reservation that Hobart is in, where we said, you know, if somebody picks up the phone in this downtown Oneida area, which includes our Oneida Police Department, and if they call 911, we want our Oneida officers dispatched. And Hobart says, no, we want our officers dispatched. And the county said, no, we said Oneida should be dispatched. And then Hobart files suit. So these are the types of things that, you know, at every turn we're being challenged with, with everything we try to do. We have other agreements um, with, with the local governments and the village just tries to step in and, and interfere because mm. their, their main concern is that they want to be the ones to tell everyone else how they should be doing things. And they don't believe that the Oneida Nation should be recognized as a sovereign government. Becky, this book is just loaded with facts. You've got some great maps in here, uh, so much information. How long did it take you to write this? It was actually really fast. Um, I was surprised at how fast it was because, um, yeah, it, it, it only took a matter of a few months to pull this together. And, you know, earlier I, I was telling you how much I admired how well it's written and, you know, some of the challenges of nonfiction. And, and I want to ask you, like, if for somebody who's listening to our show right now, uh, a Native person, maybe even an, an Oneida person such as yourself, and, and they're thinking to themselves, wow, you know, this book in defense of sovereignty, it sounds really interesting, but geez, I don't know if I've got the time to sit down in the middle of all my other priorities in life and, and read 200 pages about my tribal history. What do you want to tell that person? It's I don't even know if somebody wouldn't want to know their own history. I think this is so vital to what's going on in our community. And that is part of the frustration is that people only kind of in passing know that Hobart is obnoxious or Hobart is interfering, but they don't know the whole story. And I think that it's really important for us because, you know, we have this whole dual citizenship thing, right? We are, we are citizens of the United Nation, but we also have the ability to vote in local elections. And I think if more of our people knew about this, that we would show up at the polls to make sure that the people who are in charge in the village of Hobart, who are advocating for the destruction of tribal sovereignty, would not get reelected. But we don't currently have those numbers that are going to the polls and are exercising their rights. And until we do, this kind of stuff is going to happen over and over and over again. And this story with the Oneida Nation, the village of Hobart, uh, what lessons can other tribes get from your book, Becky? Yeah, um, there's, a, there's a playbook in here, of course, uh, hidden amongst all of these cases. And that is how to, you know, defend yourself against these constant uh, non-ending attacks from these uh, local governments. And in fact, we've had an informal network when I was an attorney for Oneida where we shared our the briefs in our similar cases with each other and almost word for word were the the briefs in these other cases so these folks are um fighting tribes um and they're sharing briefs they're using the same attorneys they're providing a network to try to find these test cases 
to overturn decades of federal Indian law in favor of these local governments and against tribal sovereignty. So I think it's imp important to recognize that and to be able to reach out to each other, to um, support each other, to provide the best legal advice and representation that we can. I know there are you know, networks out there already, but it can happen in tribes and reservations where you might not necessarily think that it will happen. But when it does, I think it's important to be informed and be prepared. Well, Becky, uh, this playbook, really fascinating. And you got me thinking, I'm wondering what other NFL teams uh, have their stadiums situated on tribal lands as well. So Becky Webster, Assistant Professor of American Indian Studies at the University of Minnesota, wrote this book, In Defense of Sovereignty. And it's a really compelling read all about the history of the Oneida Nation and their right to self-determination. The number to call, 1-800-99-NATIVE. If you've got a question, 1-800-996-2848. We'll be right back. Support for the menu comes from Spirit Mountain Roasting Company, a small batch specialty coffee roaster located on the Fort Yuma Quetzon Reservation. Information and online ordering at spiritmountainroasting.com slash news. This Easter, you can find truly unique gifts and menu items from SweetgrassTradingCo.com, a Ho-Chunk Inc. company, where you can choose from a variety of food, beauty, and wellness items from tribes across Turtle Island. Ho-Chunk Inc. supports this show. Welcome back to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about new books by Native author today. Still time to join the conversation. What's a favorite book of yours written by a Native author? Tell us about it. 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Let's get some more calls going here. And with that said, we've got a caller right now, Donna, listening in Wasilla, Alaska. Donna, hello. It's good to be in your neck of the woods this morning. Oh, yes, we have tons of snow. <laughs> this is Alaska. I can see. Yeah, I'm Land looking out the, the window there. right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I this is a very, very deep and profound subject when you're talking about sovereignty. And I thought, well, where does sovereignty come from? And I thought, oh, it comes from our Creator. Our Creator gives us the power to have peace with people and to love people and to make negotiations with them, which, you know, will provide benefits for everybody. And when that happens, then we see good things happening. And when we try to get in there and push too much, then we find, oh, this isn't working. You know, so I've written a poem that I sent to the presidents, and the uh, first one was Ronald Reagan. And when I write the letter, I try to put things in there that I think uh, that need to be worked on. And I try to be respectful and love people. And that is not easy when you're talking about sovereignty and land issues. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I think that if we just take a deep breath and, you know, like we were doing, laugh and enjoy life and love people, that it's all going to work out. All righty. Donna in Wasilla, Alaska. Thank you for calling in today, Donna. And 
Becky, I, I thought that was interesting. Donna just said sovereignty comes from the creator. And uh, I think that really much, very much falls in line with the spirit of your book. And I want to ask you, what kind of feedback are you getting so far for in defense of sovereignty? Um, I'm not sure that I've had other feedback other than um, it is a little bit surreal to see on social media people posting pictures of my book. Um, I'm like, hey, that's something with my name on it in your house. That's that's pretty weird. But um, <laughs> so far, it's all been good stuff, um, but not a whole lot as the book just came out. All righty. Well, thank you uh, for commenting there, Becky. And let's go back to the phones listening up in uh, gusty Rosebud, South Dakota on Key Lee. We've got a caller there. So let's go ahead and, and take the phone over to South Dakota. Hello. Hello. Can you hear me? <laughs> yeah, I can hear you through the wind. How's it going? I'm going great. Thank you. Um, I had a question for Kinsale. Um I guess some context. I know that in the creative writing process, sometimes we need to turn to research. So I was just curious what you know, doing research for poetry looks like or, you know, just okay. kind of a bird's eye view for what that might look like. Absolutely. Yeah. Kinsel, please respond. What kind of research goes into to your poetry? Um, research comes from a variety of, of things, and, and thank you, Gusty, for your question. I think as a student for a long time, I was conditioned to really only see research and archive as something very um, based in documents and, you know, very Western views of what research is, very narrow. But, you know, as I've been discovering our stories and our, our oral narratives, our poems themselves are archived and they are resources that we have um, that can be part of our research. So that's, you know, something that has definitely been expanded by the world of Indigenous poetics and literature specifically is, you know, the research that I do is informed by many different things, you know, memory, firsthand experience, family stories, family histories. Um, but also, you know, documents, yes, uh, other points of view, historically, different um, languages, understandings of languages and land, maps and cartography, how those are shaped. I think that really brings in, you know, a lot of nuance. Um, and I also, you know, this is a little different, uh, but I also wanted to take this opportunity to, you know, talk about literary research in terms of growing up and expanding your worldview as a writer, you know, what authors you were looking to and what poetry ancestors you were engaging with in terms of research. I think we as young writers learn a lot from the people who have come before. And, um, you know, I feel, I feel like it's important to add that um, I admired a lot of writers a lot when I was younger, including Sherman Alexie. And um, I, this is, you know, nothing to do with with Anne, who called in earlier, but I just feel obligated to say because I, I have written, you know, a slam poem about Sherman Alexie. If you Google, mm -hmm. you know, my name, it comes up. Um, I, it's hard because you know he was accused of misconduct by so many authors. Right. Part of that right. research is, is looking beyond the canon that's been pushed on us. You know, just Sherman Alexie, learning him, reading his work. What other writers are there for us to support and uplift, especially Native women? Um, and for me, that was, you know, the world of Natalie Diaz and Tai Tibble and Louise Erdrich, Hyde E. Erdrich, um, you know, all of these amazing, Lady Long Soldier, for example, like 
there's so many people who are pushing the boundaries of writing who can lend so much to your own work. Um, and we don't have to stick to, you know, a canon or a literary list that's been pushed onto us. And I think I felt for a long time, and I'm sure many other young Native writers who were um, not men, they felt similarly that it was scary to expand their their um, scope beyond what was considered acceptable Native literature, Sherman Alexie being amongst those. But I hope, you know, even if you're listening right now, like, it's, it is hard. It's scary <laughs> to be on a radio okay. show being like, actually, I don't like Sherman Alexie. Um, <laughs> no problem. Just no know, problem. Just, yeah, just know that, you know, there's a community for you to support you. We are your poetry community. And, you know, let's do this work together and this research together. Kinsella, I, I think uh, your comments here are just a great segue into our next caller. We have Sarah, who's listening in uh, Oklahoma, Muscogee Nation, and I think she has some questions about book recommendations, other Native authors. Sarah, are you there? Hey, Hench Day, I am here. Thank you. You bet, Sarah. Hey, Kinsella, I, I was going to ask for, um, you know, some book recommendations. You just listed some incredible authors, and I, I can't wait to look into the folks who... Uh, I wasn't familiar with, I guess, to build on that, I wonder, given that like academia writing um, can be kind of a small universe, how do you, like, where do you find the strength to, you know, speak up whenever you run into things like this, like when an author is being used or uh, an academic is being used to lay a lot of foundational work in your field? Where does that strength come from for you to for you to speak your mind and, and speak your truth? Thanks for that call, Sarah. Kinsale, please respond. That's a great question. And I think, you know, my answer comes from not just myself, but a community, I think, is the most, you know, obvious answer to that. Um, you know, Black and Indigenous scholars have talked about the undercommons a lot, which is, you know, in academia, this you know, underground community network where people are dismantling um, academic stigmas and they're, you know, talking about revolution, things like that. Um, community, I think, can operate in that way, you know, by building kinship with each other, by confiding in one another, by asking each other questions. I think finding allies, you're stronger as a unit. So, for example, as an undergrad, when I had an issue with a syllabus, I would ask other natives, who are in my class, you know, do you, does this make you uncomfortable too? You know, let's talk about it. You know, let's send an email to the professor. We can all be CC'd. Um, and that's much more, you know, I think that's definitely something powerful is the community you can find um, in these spaces and that you have that can support you. It'll make you feel much less um, isolated and, and, you know, much, much less vulnerable, I think is really important because, you know, as Native peoples, advocating for ourselves is incredibly hard you know we're not the thing is you have to remember is like we, we're communities too like we're not meant to stand alone we're meant to be together and stand up together and we're most powerful when we do that i think that applies to academia most definitely i think the most changes were were made communally no that's a really good point kinsell yeah absolutely at the community focus like that kinsell um before we run out of time here i, I want to circle back around and ask you more about this big launch you have coming up next month in Phoenix. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I'm really excited. Well, tell us uh, how can people find out more about it and also the Indian Girls Book Club. Yeah, so our website actually is launching in about, 
Let me check my watch. Uh, Ten minutes. <laughs> so if you want to <laughs> learn more about our book club, um, IndianGirlsBookClub.org. Well, it has resources, fellowships, um, a cute online store, uh, but it also has a poet map. It has uh, grants, a grant database. It has a lot of stuff for young um, writers and readers, but also educators. Um, our launch is going to be in Phoenix on April 22nd at Palabras Bookstore and Abalone Mountain Press, and we're going to have some amazing people there, Tanaya Winder, um, some authors locally who are going to be just there hanging out, signing books. We have we got a grant from Indian Collective to give away books for free, so we're really, really excited. OXDX Clothing is doing some special merch with us. And by the way, this is all like the first time this is being announced, so <laughs> you'll get the inside scoop. Um, but it's going to be really fun. We're really excited for it. All right. Well, we really appreciate you sharing this exclusive with us here on Native American Calling <laughs> and uh, giving us the chance to to help you spread the word. So, uh, Kinsel, we're really happy for all of your success and, and looking forward to more. And best of luck in the future and going oh, forward, okay? Thank you so much. Thank you for you having bet. me, too, and letting me talk about it. You bet. You bet. And going back to Becky Webster. Now, Becky, uh, I had a, somebody called into the show, and they just said, hey, repeat the title a few more times and tell us how to get the book. So I'm going to repeat the title. The In Defense of Sovereignty, Protecting the Oneida Nation's Inherent Right to Self-Determination by Rebecca Webster. And Becky, how can listeners read your book? The best way to get it is go right to the University of Wisconsin Press on their website. You can search for the book there. And that's uh, supporting the press also. All righty. The title again, In Defense of Sovereignty, Protecting the United Nations' Inherent Right to Self-Determination. And Becky, I know you were an expert on this history going into this, but were there any surprises that you discovered just through doing the additional research and also consulting with some of these other writers who assisted in the project? Um, no, I think it was it was nice to be able to revisit it from uh, having stepped away from it. That was what I was really nervous about coming back to it because, like I had mentioned earlier, it was it was so toxic. And all of these other writers are, you know, the two historians we had hired them to be expert witnesses in in our litigation. Uh, Bill Gulnick, who was the retired chief of staff, I had worked with him the entire time that I was there. Um, uh, Jim Bidorf and our Linda Locklear are two attorneys that. I had um, worked with closely for that whole time. So it was nice to kind of uh, bring back, bring the band back together again, so to speak, mm. to be able to write this book. So um, if anything was surprising, it was that I was able to look at this without having um, it be such an awful feeling as it did while we were in the midst of all this litigation. Well, now that you finished up this book, uh... Has it given you any ideas for more nonfiction, more historical accounts of maybe your own tribal history or, or other tribes? Yeah, so I have a book coming out May 1st. It's called Our Precious Corn, Yungwa Nasti, and that outlines the history of our corn, starting with creation. It talks about all of our, you know, uh, colonization, assimilation, removal, how through all of that corn has remained by our side and it has been constantly leading us back to our language, our history, our culture. And um, it's looking toward what's happening now with the food sovereignty movement and looking toward the future. So uh, be on the lookout for that book on May 1st. It's Again, it's Our Precious Corn, Yungwa Nasti. Mm -hmm. 
I want to go back to that caller we had earlier, Becky, who mentioned sovereignty comes from the creator. And we're going to have to wrap up the show here in a couple of minutes. But I want to give you the last word. And just if you could just reflect for a moment and tell us where do you see us headed as Native people with regard to sovereignty? So many issues right now in the news with ICWA and some of these big Supreme Court rulings uh, impacting folks down in Oklahoma. Where do you think we're going here? I'm I'm hoping that, you know, it's really hard to predict, if, especially if you look back at where we have been with our status of our sovereignty. But I really do want to take to heart that comment about our sovereignty comes from our creator. And when creator, according to our version of, of the creation story, um, when he created us, he, he didn't intend for us to be doing these types of things to each other, the types of things that are in this book, the types of things that are going on in, in all of these courtrooms, that that is not how human beings were, were created to be. Um, and I'm hopeful that in the future, we can find our way back to figuring out how we're supposed to be as human beings to treat each other's like, like as though we're all brothers and sisters and we're all in this together. And as soon as people can you know, start to realize more of that, um, I think the better of a position we're going to be in. I feel that asking somebody to pick up a book and read it is one of the biggest asks you can make of a person. It requires time, energy, and commitment. And what we really want to do is encourage all of our listeners to do just that. Pick up a book or a tablet, however you get your information, and turn a few pages. And if so, hopefully it will be the pages written by a Native author. And with that, we are going to have to wrap up our show for today. I want to say thank you to our guests, Rebecca Webster and Kinsel Drake, for inspiring us to read. Join us next week for another compelling lineup of conversations about Indigenous issues and topics. Our executive producer is Art Hughes. Our producers are Andy Murphy and Sol Traverso. Marino Spencer is the engineer. Joe McPollin is the digital producer. Nola Daves Moses is the distribution director. Bob Peterson is the network manager for Native Voice One. Clifton Chadwick is our national underwriting sales director. Antonia Gonzalez is the anchor for National Native News. Charles Sather is our chief operations officer. The president and CEO of Quantic Broadcast Corporation is Jacqueline Salee. Have a safe weekend. I'm Sean Spruce. Program support by Amerind. For 35 years, Indian Country has put its trust in Amerind, providing insurance coverage, strengthening Native American communities, protecting tribal sovereignty, and keeping dollars in Indian Country are Amerind's priorities. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto needs at Amerind.com. That's A M E R I N D.com. Smoking gave me COPD, which makes it harder and harder for me to breathe. I have a tip for you. If your doctor gives you five years to live, spend it talking with your grandchildren. Explain to them that your grandpa's not gonna be around anymore to share his wisdom and his love. I haven't figured out how to do that yet. I'm running out of time. COPD makes it harder and harder to breathe and can cause death. You can quit. For free help, call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation 
a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.